0: All right. Well, it is <clears throat> our last lesson in the book of Haggai, as I had mentioned that we're taking a three lesson detour of sorts as uh, the book of Ezra has been calling for how the people were going to return and rebuild and restore the work of God. And we saw in those first four chapters of Ezra that the work had come to a stop for 16 years Haggai comes on the scene as one of the prophets at that time. Uh, and he's telling them that they need to get back to work. And one of the messages that, that Haggai is offering in this book is that God wants to bless his people. And that shouldn't be a surprising idea. It is a, a common theme that you see in the scriptures of God's desire to be with his people and to bless his people, uh, where we even saw this morning that here you have the, the descriptions of who are the people that God blesses as Jesus, uh, gets on that mountain and proclaims them this blessed life, uh, that is found in him. But in that, sometimes you might look around and wonder, well, if God wants to bless his people, why isn't he doing that? Why doesn't he just go ahead and Bless them if he wants to bless them. And this is a, a, a an important question that Haggai is answering. You might remember in the first chapter, one of the ways that Haggai answered this question of how God was wanting to bless his people but couldn't do it was because the people had the wrong priorities. Chapter one described they were busy with their paneled houses while the work of God remained desolate and God's house had been left unfinished, and God said through Haggai, "Get back to work, and you will see the the restoration of God's blessings to the people." We're going to see something similar here at the end of chapter two, but it's another reason that is given as to why God is not blessing His people. And this second part, I think, is extremely important, not only for our own lives and talking about our priority in our need to serve God. But this ending really does have a fantastic messianic vision of what God was intending for him to be able to bless and be with his people. So let's notice the problem as it is given to us. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 10. Haggai 2 verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew or some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? And the priests answered, no. And then Haggai said, If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Let's start with that beginning point as... Haggai proceeds to uh, illustrate the problem that is before them. It's an interesting illustration. You might notice that I think it is interesting that Haggai seems to start with questions every time. And here's another question that's posed. I, I want you to ask the priest a question. If, if uh, you have the priest and his garments are holy, and he's carrying the consecrated meat, and then he puts that meat down, and then if the fold of his garment goes and starts touching other things and other items... Would those items be made holy also? Well, the answer is no, it wouldn't. However, if a defiled person, and you have a person who's come in contact with the dead body, and then he goes about touching all these other things, will those things become defiled? And the answer is yes, those things will be defiled. It's an interesting beginning point that you have illustrated that here is Haggai getting the people to think about the nature of uncleanness and defilement and how far reaching that defilement can go where holiness cannot be transferred to the third degree. You might have. The, 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 fold of the, the priest's garment and the consecrated meat, but that's the end of it right there. It's not going to go on and on and on in everything that it touches. But how interesting the other side of the coin trying to describe the defilement and the uncleanness and say, but if that person were to touch other unclean things, those things also would become unclean. Now I want you to notice that what is stated about that in verse 14 because I think it's a shocking statement when you consider it. Here Haggai says in verse 14, So it is with this people and with this nation in my sight. Whatever they do and whatever they offer is defiled. That's a pretty powerful statement. Because I don't think the point is... That everything the people were doing were sinful. And so it doesn't matter. They're just committing sins and everything they do is sin. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that all of their good deeds are amounting to nothing because they're defiled before God. They're pictured as this defiled object and the holy and clean objects touching it are not making them clean, but defiling what they've done. That's why you have Haggai using this illustration to try to get them to understand all of their works and all of their acts are ultimately defiled by God. And I want us to think about that spiritual truth because I think it is a really important one. Because he's observing that here they are and they could be bringing their offerings and they could be doing the things that God says to do. And they could be doing a variety of good acts. And yet notice how God perceives it. God looks at it and says, it's defiled. I don't want it. It's not good to him. He's not accepting it. What a a thought. Here they are. You can imagine them bringing all of these great offerings and bringing their gifts and they're doing all those things. And God is looking at every single one of them saying, it's stained. I don't want it. It's unclean. It's defiled. It's no good. Even though they may be thinking they're doing these great things, God's not receiving it at all. I thought this might be a a useful illustration. I thought about it in two ways. I thought about it in terms of myself. Uh, Have you ever been so dirty? Uh, working outside, working on something that it doesn't matter what you end up touching. You start making everything else dirty. You know, like you're working on a car and it doesn't matter what you touch. Everything else just starts getting completely gross. Uh, you start working in the yard and everywhere you go, you're just leaving dirt and marks and grass and all that. When you have kids, you really become aware of that. Because now you don't even let them in the house. You just grab them by their waist and walk like this to the shower because they're going to mess up, defile, and make unclean everything that they touch. And you might even have a kid say, oh, no, I'll clean it up. And you go, no, don't touch anything. Just get in the shower because you're only going to make it worse because you're so unclean. That's the imagery that's happening here. Is you're so unclean that everything you touch... Every good act you're doing and everything you offer is actually becoming tainted. It's actually becoming ruined. And everything that they do is just making more of a mess rather than making things better. And I think that's an important picture. Is that we can sometimes think that before God, if we would just do some good deeds here and there from time to time while being defiled that that's somehow going to make some kind of impact on God. You know, my favorite is you live your life however you want to from Monday through Saturday, sit down in a pew for an hour, and that's somehow going to just be okay before God. And God's looking at them going, that's defiled. I don't want that. That's just as unclean as everything else you've been doing in your life. And sometimes we can have a mentality about that with God that think, Well, you know, I know I've got all this uncleanness, but let me just kind of throw in a token good act every once in a while. And God will will like that. And you listen to verse 14 when it says, whatever they do and whatever they offer is defiled. That God is not receiving it, that God will not accept it. And I think it is important for us to hear the words of what you have God trying to communicate that all of our efforts and all of our works and all of our offerings can be ultimately defiled and that God would not receive it. And I think that's such an important picture that is given to us because sometimes we can just think that, well, our good works are just going to reverse that defilement somehow. And sometimes we can even have that mentality in a religious way, like, Well, here's all my bad deeds, but maybe if I can do enough good deeds, I can overpower the bad deeds. And notice God says, you can keep doing all those good deeds, but they're just as defiled as the bad deeds. You're just defiled. You're the the messy child going around the house trying to clean up your mess, only making more of a mess as you try to clean your mess. You're not getting anywhere with with God and trying to do something like that. That's not how God fundamentally operates It is an important picture that God tries to teach throughout the scriptures, this important picture about the polluting power of sin. It is hard for us to get our minds around it, but that is why you have the Hebrew scriptures teaching us about things being clean and unclean and what defiles and what is not defiled. Because God's trying to communicate a message of how powerful the the polluting nature of sin truly is. That Our uncleanness can only make more uncleanness. We're only making it worse because of our defilement. We're not making those things better. And you probably have observed that in your life and in the lives of others. In the mistakes and the sins that we commit, how often do you see sinful actions only beget more sinful actions? That's a very typical response. That's especially true in relationships. If somebody does something sinful to me, I'm very tempted to do something sinful back. That's just kind of how it works is that defilement brings more defilement. Uncleanness brings more uncleanness. And we begin to walk into that process and commit those kinds of things. I can't tell you how many times in in dealing with relationships and dealing with people. And it often boils down to, well, the other person did this first. And so then you go to that person and say, well, why are you doing that? They say you did this, and they say, well, that's because they had done. And so then you bring that up to, well, they said, well, that's because before that they had done. And there's just this cycle of sin going on. It is the polluting nature of sin that. The, the ripples of sin are just like a, a rock in a pond that just keep going and going and going. And that's the imagery here is when he, he uses the illustration of here is somebody who's touched a dead body and he touches something else and touches something else. Is it defiled? Yes, it is. It just keeps defiling and defiling and defiling and defiling until the person gets clean. It's just going to be defilement upon defilement upon defilement. And so the imagery that you have for us is that we cannot clean our own defiled hands. Everything we touch leads to more defilement and more uncleanness. Let me come back to the question here that I think is important as we try to understand the problem. That here is the statement, whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. And one of the big questions that has to hang over this prophecy is, well, what was the problem? Why is it that everything they touch and everything that they do and everything they offer is considered defiled by God? What is going on in in this scene? One of the things that God was saying that he's trying to do to wake them up to that reality that everything that they do was defiled. You'll notice in verse 16 and in verse 17, he reminds them about how he had stunted their economic prosperity. Remember, chapter one spoke very heavily about that. He reminds them of that in chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 where he tells them, here you thought you were going to get so much and yet you only got little. You only got half of that. Verse 17, I struck all the work of your hands with blight mildew and hail yet you did not return to me declares the Lord so again God is reminding them you were not seeing what I was trying to get you to understand and try to get you to return to me I made it difficult on you I made your life unsatisfied I made it fruitless so that it would hopefully open your eyes and cause you to realize that you're defiled and you need to be clean and you need to come back to me but he says you didn't see it In fact, consider what we've learned in the book of Haggai. For 16 years, they didn't see it. For 16 years, they have been defiled. And keep thinking that their defiled hands are going to somehow turn to cleanness in their life, and it's not doing it. So what was the problem? Well, notice in this section, he says it twice. What was the problem? Verse 15. (laughs) Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. Notice he puts his finger on something. He says, that is what was going on before you began to build the temple again. I was doing this to you because you were defiled. And the reason you were defiled is because you didn't have God's temple. In fact, he says that again in verse 19 when he tells them, is there any seed? Well, Verse 18, from this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. Notice that he's trying to get them to understand their need for the Lord's temple. For 16 years they have been without it. And they've been trying to live their lives without it, thinking that they can be fine before God, holy before God, performing their righteous acts, bringing their offerings. And God has said there in verse 14, it didn't matter what you did. It didn't matter what you offered. I wasn't accepting it. It was all defiled because there was something that was lacking and it was of the utmost importance. The temple of God was not there. The temple of God was lacking, And the people are then described as being defiled because they lacked a temple. To state that another way, God was trying to show the people that they were missing the most important thing. The most important thing is the temple of God. The people needed the temple. And until the temple was the priority and until the temple was built, there could not be any blessings from God. To summarize it, what God is saying is without the temple, all of your efforts are in vain. And without the temple, I cannot bless you. And without the temple, that curse can't be reversed into blessing. They were going to continue to suffer and continue to have hardship until the priority of the temple and until it was built was then simply put into place. What God was trying to shine into their minds was to get them to see that they desperately needed God's temple in their lives. Now, I do not believe that it is any accident that when you fast forward into the New Testament that Jesus starts walking around and saying, I'm the temple. I'm the priority. I'm the thing you need. I'm the way you have access to God. I'm the way that you have the blessings of God. I am the way that the curse can be reversed into blessing and prosperity. Without me, your efforts are absolutely In vain. anything about how not only Jesus said things like that but even the New Testament authors would speak about Jesus as the importance of the temple you might remember Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being a cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the lord in him you were also being built together into a dwelling place for god by the spirit this imagery that christ is the cornerstone of the temple the apostles in part are off as part of the foundation you too are a part of this temple one of the ways that jesus really tried to communicate this was over in john chapter 5 and verse 15 john 5 chapter 15 in verse 5 where you have there jesus saying i'm the vine and you are the branches Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. This is what Haggai is trying to say right here. Is that until you are clean before God, you're not going to get anywhere apart from me, you can do nothing. We just had a great illustration of this this afternoon (laughs) at our house. Um, the roses that I had bought for April for ba- Valentine's Day are now, you know, <sniffs> wilted and dying over and turning black and crumpling up and all of that. And I was telling Grace, it's time for me to, to throw these away. And her response was, well, why don't you, you can just put more water on it? And I'm like, no, once they're cut from that vine, they're not going to live. They can't. Apart from that, those flowers can't do anything. And that's the idea here why Jesus walked around and said, I'm the vine. I'm the temple. The only way you can have any life, any satisfaction, any joy, any blessing of God is only because it is through him, apart from him, we can do absolutely nothing. And so that is the picture, is that sometimes we fail to think and understand that life can't be right until we make the temple the priority. Until Jesus is everything, life can't be right. And until Jesus is everything, I submit to you, it's the same image. We can go about doing all the good works and doing worship and giving our offering. And it's all defiled before God because Jesus isn't everything to us, because Jesus is not the center, because he is not the temple that we've come to. And so we can play the part and do the works. But Jesus has to be that focal point for 16 years. I didn't grasp that. They didn't see how their decision to not make God's temple the priority had caused them to lack the blessings of God, but rather to stand defiled before God. That leads to this final paragraph. And sometimes this final paragraph might be, a little bit confusing, but you'll, you'll notice it is a second prophecy on the exact same day. When you compare verse 10 to verse 20, it's the second time on the same day of the same month. And so Haggai's giving two prophecies on the same day. And so they are intertwined together. And listen to what Haggai now says as he concludes his message of hope to the people. First 20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month tells Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you my like my signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord Almighty. This final image is an image that is ultimately of reversal. You will notice the image in verse 21 as well as in verse 22 where God is pictured as overthrowing nations and re- restoring blessings to his people. In fact, the imagery is that again uh, again of the Exodus when he talks about Overthrowing the chariots and their drivers and the horses and their riders it's the same wording from the song of Moses of how how God had overthrown Egypt and given deliverance and victory to the people same picture is being used again where God is saying now that the temple is in focus and now that you have returned to the work I am going to return with blessings and deal with your enemies. But he uses this really strange image when he says, and Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like a signet ring. And you go, okay, well, what are you trying to get at with that? And Haggai is presuming a knowledge of the other prophets because you had a very unique prophecy image given by the prophet Jeremiah. In, in, In Jeremiah 22, for the sake of time, we won't read it, but He gives an interesting prophecy. We have studied in the kings that as you come to the end of the king line, all of those kings are evil and wicked. And one of God's messages through Jeremiah to the king Jehoiakim is because of your wickedness and your rejection of me, he says, you are like a signet ring of a king that I am taking off and I am throwing it to the Babylonians. So you get the image. You're no longer my king. I'm sending you to the Babylonians. But the casting off of the ring, he also says, your offspring are not going to sit on the throne. That's it. It's not going to be, that ring's not going to be passed on to your child's son, and next son, next son. It's the end of the lineage. And now Haggai comes in and says, here's what God says. Zerubbabel is my signet ring. It is a picture of God picking the ring back up and placing it on Zerubbabel and saying we are restarting the king line and through him the kings will be restored. So much so when you go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12, Zerubbabel's name. Is in the list of the genealogy of Jesus. Showing it is through Zerubbabel. Now the kings are going to sit on the throne again. And ultimately waiting for Jesus. Because no one actually sat on a physical throne. Until the arrival of Jesus. But it gives us this beautiful picture. Of God restoring blessings. All the way to the degree of the return of the king. Who is going to now give blessings to his people. Now. One of the things that I think is important about this picture that is being given to us is there in verse 19, as he says, Now that you have returned to building, because he reminds them of the past, is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But then notice how he ends that. But from this day on, from this day on, I will bless you. From this day on, things are going to change. Up to this point, their efforts have been fruitless. Up to this point, they've been considered defiled. Up to this point, God has not blessed his people. But now with the temple in focus, and now that the temple is in the center of their lives they will now have the help and the hope that they need. And continuing that temple imagery, this is what has is shown to us, is that our help and our hope is only in that temple. And that's in Christ. And that's what God says, is I'm going to bless this people from now on because of my temple. It's kind of a shame that Because of so many teaching abuses, we can shy away from the clear teaching of of God that says, I bless my people when they obey me. It is something that is found all over the place in the scriptures where I'm not going to bless you because you've turned away and you've disobeyed. I will bless you because you obey me and because you follow me. The whole book of Proverbs is essentially that kind of idea. If you will follow my wisdom and and fear the Lord, here's some of the things that God is able to do and how God is able to bless you. The problem is that the false teaching comes in and makes it like a a contract and says, "Okay, well, if I serve and obey, obey God, God is contractually obligated to make my life better. I'll never have any problems. I'll always be healthy and I'll always be rich and I'll always have stuff and you'll have whatever you want. That's where it all goes awry. This is not us doing something going, okay, God, well, I did my righteous act, so you have to do good by me. It doesn't work like that. But there is an important truth that is here. And I think this is what God is saying. Is that unless we serve and obey him, then there's always going to be these obstacles between us and him and him blessing us. And that what we are doing by coming to him and removing the defilement and removing sin and serving the Lord and seeking to obey him is ultimately removing the obstacles and opening the door for God to be able to bless us because defilement is only going to bring more defilement. And it is only when we get that out of our lives that God is looking at us and going, okay, I I see that you obey. I see that you serve. I see that you are seeking me. And that's what the message is here as, as Haggai has given it twice over. Do you see that I haven't blessed you? It was to make you wake up and cause you to look and pay attention to the idea that is God center or not. And only when God is center. Can things be be turned around? I used the imagery a few weeks ago. I'll use it again because I like this image. If you get the first button of your button-up shirt wrong, I don't care what you do. You're never going to get it right. You can mess with it all you want to, but you have to get the first one right. And God's communicating that through Haggai. Until you get me first, you cannot have life right. It is impossible. It is just defilement and uncleanness, chasing defilement and uncleanness. It's never going to be right. And we are ultimately blocking ourselves from God, putting obstacles in our way so that we cannot come back to God. Life can't be right Until we come to the temple, until we seek him and find in him the healing and the blessing and the hope that we're uh, looking for. It is fascinating to me that as human beings, we spend so much time trying to figure out how to advance in life, have the good life, seek out these kinds of things all to the neglect of God. When God is sitting here saying, what you need in your life is me, and it'll never be right until you start there. It'll never be right until you start there with God. Relationships can't be right. Life can't be right. Nothing can be right. And that's what Jesus was doing by imaging himself then as the temple and using the Haggai imagery here is that until life is centered around God's temple, There's no hope. There's no forgiveness. There's no life. There's no satisfaction. And it's until we see him as that life, then we will finally be able to say the words like Peter said, when Jesus asked Peter, you want to go somewhere else? No. You're the only one I want to go to. You have the words of life. You are the temple that I have to come to because going anywhere else is not ever going to be the answer. I think it's so important that you have this beautiful picture of God saying, I want to bless. I want to be with you. I want relationship with you. But we need to consider, do we have so many things blocking our relationship with God? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, like the people that we are reading about in Haggai's day, it is so easy for us to allow our schedules and our busyness and our concerns of the day and the difficulties of life to cause us to not make you our number one, to make you not only our priority, but the only place that we want to go. And Lord, sometimes we don't understand why things are messed up in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see that So often we fail to put you first. And so often we fail to look to your ways, to look to your word, to look to your guidance, to seek how we can serve you and to seek how we can worship you. But instead that we just chase defilement with defilement. Lord, forgive us for how often we try to make our own lives right in our own eyes and we try to clean ourselves up and ignore what you want us to do. Lord, I pray that you would prick our hearts when we do that. Help us to be aware when we are putting this world and this world's concerns and our priorities and our desires far ahead of you. And Lord, we certainly desire to be blessed by you. We want a deeper relationship with you. We we want everything that we could possibly have from you. We know that. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And Lord, we pray for that in our lives, that that we would clear out obstacles, clear out sins, and clear out defilements so that we can draw closer to you. Help us to apply what the writer of Hebrews told us to do, to lay aside every encumbrance and weight and every sin that clings so closely to us that keeps us from moving closer to you. And so, Lord, forgive us for when we've chosen to seek the joys of this world and the joys that are found in you. And, Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we seek you, bless us as we strive to obey you. And most importantly, Lord, we praise you and thank you for the blessing of your son, who is the very reason that we can have any goodness at all in our lives and is the only reason we can look for any goodness to come in eternity. This we pray through your son and our savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen.